Dads, one of the things that we, uh, we talk about is often is we wanna, we wanna call you up. We don't wanna put you down. A lot of times churches, when it comes to Father's Day or anything about men, it's like, let me just beat you down with how bad you're doing. And what we wanna do as a church is, is we wanna call you up to be that, that priest, that prophet, that provider, that protector that God has called you to be. And so as a church, we wanna put our hands together and just thank the guys and the dads in this room in particular. And uh, if you're watching across uh, the 828, uh, uh, thank you for uh, thanks thanks for what God's doing at all the, all the different campuses. I would say if you were watching online, uh, there's about a million people that visit uh, the 828 in the summertime. And if you find yourself here uh, this summer, come visit us at one of the locations. And then lastly, I would say this: what was mentioned earlier is there's actually in the next two weeks, there are seven, there are seven uh, adventure weeks going on. And that's awesome. One of the things as a parent, you know, hopefully you know as a parent, one of the purposes that you have, one of the crystal clear callings on your life, if you are a parent, is to disciple uh, your child. Disciple, it's not just to say, well, they're gonna make up their own mind. If you're a follower of Jesus, one of your callings on your life is to do the very best you can. You can't make it happen, but you want to figure out how do I disciple my little girl? How do you disciple my little boy? And what we want to do is we want to come alongside you as a church. And one of the ways that discipleship concentrate is done is on like weeks and the next couple of weeks. And as a church, you guys have done an amazing, there's already 400 adults that are working over the next couple of weeks at Adventure Week. I'm not talking about kids, I'm talking about 400 adults that are taking vacation off. Uh, they are taking, uh, they're taking time away from their business so they can pour into the next generation. And if you're like 50, 55, 60, there's nothing wrong with that. We're glad everybody's here. All right, I'm over, I'm over 50, but we had our chance. You understand that? Our, our deal now, if you're that age, our deal is how do we get the gospel to the next generation? How do we get it to the next generation? How do we get it to the teenagers and the kids? And how do we make sure we are faithful in passing the gospel on to the next generation? And uh, I'll thank you that you step up with that all the time. It's good to know your purpose. That's what we're here for. We want to make disciples of Jesus, right? That reach up, reach in, reach out. And I can't think of much more important things than if you know your purpose. Purpose is such a key to, to virtually all of your life. Why am I here? What am I doing? What meaning does this have? And so there are a few things that are more important than finding that purpose, and it gives meaning to your life. It simplifies the decisions you've got to make. It's like you can evaluate, hey, is this helping me in the purpose that God has for me? Are these priorities, are these activities, are these helping with the purpose of God's life that he has for me? And I'll be honest, I talk to guys all the time, particularly guys all the time, and they're in a midlife crisis, most of the ones I talk to. They're in a midlife crisis, and that midlife crisis comes somewhere, it's somewhere after 30 and before 60. And they're usually asking questions. That, you know, they're, like, they're like, hey, am, am, I, am I fulfilling God's purpose for me? All right, what's next in the season of my life? And many of them have bought into the American dream and they have in some ways fulfilled the American dream and they're kind of just standing back and going, is that all there is? I mean, is this it? Is this what my life is gonna consist of? Climbing the corporate ladder, getting to the top of it and then asking the question, is this all that there is? But when you understand something purpose, the purpose that you have, really anything, the purpose makes it easy to understand what to do when the blessings come. It also helps you at least to understand when the pain comes. If you understand, hey, there's a purpose for the pain, you can understand that. Even 
go from a Navy SEAL and all the literal hell week that they go through as well as the year and a half for training, if they understand there's a purpose for this, at the end, I'm gonna be at the tip of the spear defending our country. Or if you're a mom and you're pregnant and you put on uh, 30 pounds and 10 inches and you're like, man, this is like really difficult, but you understand at the end, this is gonna be a beautiful little baby girl. You understand the pain was still real, labor was still exhausting, but in the end, it was worth it. And in Psalm 57, you see a, a man named David who is going through a difficult time, but he understands some way, somehow, he understands behind it all, there's something bigger going on. There's a purpose behind all of this. And so Psalm 57 begins actually with what is called a prescript, a prescript of those little things that are like right before it to oftentimes give you, uh, kind of give you context. And this one starts off a little bit unusual because it starts off by saying, this is according to uh, Do Not Destroy. Apparently, Do Not Destroy was like a popular song, and he's like, this is how you sing this song. Today, we would say this is like Heart Like a Truck by Laney Wilson or something like that. It's like, that's the tune that you sing it to. But then it says the context is David when he fled from Saul, and he's in a cave. So if you're new to Bible study, here's kind of what's going on. There's a guy named Saul, not the Saul in the New Testament. There's a king in the Old Testament whose name is Saul. And he has a lot of potential. He has a lot of aptitude. But eventually, he kind of walks away from God. But he's still like the first king. He's, a, he's the king of Israel. And yet, before his kingship ends, God says David is going to be the next king. And he anoints him king. Now, if you've been anointed the second king while the first king is still on the throne, oftentimes that leads to some conflict. And it did here. And so what happens is David has to flee. He goes with like 300 or so faithful men. The first king, King Saul, is ticked off. He wants to go find him. He takes 3,000 men. And there is a scene in which David is in a cave hiding from Saul when this psalm comes to his heart. And when we look at this, I'm going to read all 11 verses. And as we read it, what I want you to do is this. I want you to notice verse 2. Verse 2 is super key. And then I want you to notice that verse 5 and verse 11 are repeated. In the Hebrew language, you, when you would repeat something, you're trying to emphasize it. You're trying to say, don't miss this. I'm going to say it again so you don't miss it on the first time. And so verse 2 is going to kind of give you the insight. It's like, hey, what's my purpose? Because that's, that's the question that all of us have. If you're a student and you're about to graduate from college and you're about to, what's my purpose? Where should I go? What job should I take? Is there a meaning if I take the job in Cleveland or if I take the job in Idaho or what should I do there? If you are a, if you're a, if you got a business, you're like, okay, what's the purpose of my business besides just making a profit? Whatever lot you are in, you want to ask the question, what's the meaning behind it? And you see a lot of this in Psalm 57. Here's where he starts off, verse one. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Verse two, key one. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. He's talking about Saul. He's talking about the 3,000 men. It's exactly what God does. Selah means to think about that. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amidst fiery beasts. He's talking about the men right outside the cave. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. 
But check out verse five. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. But my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. In other words, he's going to sing so loud, everybody in the house is going to wake up. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the people. I will sing praises to you among the nations. It's very public. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And he repeats verse five, and he says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Now, Psalm 57 is amazing on a bunch of different levels. First of all, and it's actually amazing because what he does not pray. There's nowhere in this prayer where he's like, God, would you please change my circumstances? It's not wrong to pray that. Not wrong to pray that. He prays that in other places. It's just not here. He doesn't ever pray, God, would you just like incinerate Saul? Would you like take him out? Would you crush my enemies? He doesn't pray that here. He does pray at other places, but he doesn't pray it here. He doesn't even pray, God, would you make this cave more comfortable? Would you kind of kind of make, I'm in a bad situation. Would you give a silver lining? Would you give a little comfort in the midst of hardship? Not wrong to pray that, but he just doesn't pray that right here. What he prays here is, what he prays here is that, God, I want you to take this pain, this difficulty, let this pain be a platform for you. Let this mess be a message that goes out among the nations and among the peoples. And you know what? He's, he's pretty confident that's going to happen. In verse two, he's like, you know what? God's going to do this. In verse six, God's going to do this. In verse seven and eight, God will actually do this. So there's a subject matter that I've told you before. For 15 years of ministry, I did not understand to be, I, I don't understand it obviously totally now, but I would say I actually resisted the bulk of the message that I'm about to preach to you. I resisted that, kind of just went back from it pushed back on it for maybe the first 15 years, not of my life, but of my ministry life to say, you know what? That can't be it. That can't be it. But once you understand this, this is the most freeing truth that you can ever have when you ask the idea, you know, what is my purpose? I'm a student. I'm a businessman. What is my purpose in this? And the purpose, let me give you the overarching one, and then we'll kind of bring it down to where we are. And I'm going to say something we've said before, but I got to push in on it because it's right there in the text. When you talk about what's my purpose, the first thing you got to do is you have to embrace God's bigger purpose. Understand this. You got to embrace the bigger purpose. People are like, you know what? What job should I have? We usually start off at the wrong starting point. And what's God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? Who does God want me to marry? And those are decent questions. They just start off with me as the emphasis as opposed to the bigger purpose of what's God's big overarching umbrella purpose. Listen to me. Does God have a purpose for you? Absolutely, and it's awesome. If you walked in here and you think, man, God's impersonal God. God doesn't have a plan for my life. That's ridiculous. God does have a plan for your life. He knows every hair on your head. He knows when you were born. He knows what streets you were born on. He knows what you're doing now. He knows your fears, your insecurities. He knows your pain. He knows all of that. Does God have a purpose for you? Yes, he does. It is an amazing purpose, but the key is it doesn't start with you. It doesn't start with you. God's purpose for you does not start with you. He has a good plan for our life, but that plan exists. Listen to me. It exists for God's plan. 
Some of the most joyless, anxious Christians start off asking what the purpose is for my life, and you start off at the wrong place, and it is the most enslaving question to think everything is about me. It's about me. It's about me. And what you got to kind of get in is like we got, it's not about you. The whole thing is about God. And the problem is we all drift toward, I think it was Tony Evans that says, we are by nature anthropocentric versus theocentric. And what he was saying was we are all, we all drift toward being me-centered versus God-centered. I usually start off by saying, you know what, what, is, what does this have to do with me? And me-centered is basically, and I'm not trying to be harsh unnecessarily here, but we drift toward this unless we fight against it. And that is when we start off, it's me-centered theology says God is a tool. He is a means to my end. It's all about what God gives me, that God is useful to me. He's not just beautiful. And so what happens, and this happens in churches, some churches build the whole philosophy around this one thought. And so what eventually practically happens is God becomes sort of a divine butler. It's, you know what, God is up there to basically save me and then give me my best life now. And that is not what the scripture teaches. It's just not. And um, it's not about God as a means to my end. What David is showing is that God's glory is the end. It is the target. It's not about you. He loves you, but it's not about you. It's all about God. Now, I know the resistance because I had it myself. I thought God loved me, Bruce. I mean, you tell us all the time, God loves you. You even say, you know what? God loves you so much he chose to send his son to die for you. God loves us. God loves us. So what do you, now you're telling us it's not about us. Please hear me on this. He does love you. The fact that God loves you is not saying, and it is not saying the same thing, that you are the most important thing in the universe. Now, let that, that goes against our ego. That goes against everything you are taught all day long, six and a half days a week. All day long, six and a half days a week, the whole culture is saying, it is about you, it is about you. And even preachers will get up and say, you know what, it's about you. Come to our church, because it's all about you. Listen to me, it's not about you. The most miserable people are the ones that are like, it is about me. And some of you are like, well, how, again, how can God do that? God makes God egocentric. I told you before, that's why Oprah, that's why Brad Pitt, they both said, you know what, I'm leaving the Christian faith because I don't want to worship some egotistical God that has to have people make it all about him. But here's the question I would push back, or here's the idea. The most loving thing that God can do by the way we're designed is to make it about him. Many people have used the corollary of the Copernicus Revolution. Way back in the 1500s, Nicholas Copernicus, he's the guy that looked up there and everybody thought up until that point that the earth was the center of the universe, that the earth was the center of the universe. Everything else revolved around it. And then Copernicus one day, just kind of looking up there, he's like, man, he's doing some math equations. And, he's, and he just pushes it out and he goes, what if the earth is not the center of the universe? What if it's something other than the earth? Now you and I know Thousands of years or hundreds of years later, we know the sun is the center of the solar system. The earth is not the center. We revolve around the sun. We don't, the sun doesn't revolve around us. As a matter of fact, they say if the earth was the center, it does not have the gravity or gravitas to keep all the planets in order, that it would be destroyed. And so the most loving thing is for the sun to play its perfect and proper role. Loved one, listen to me. The best thing that God could ever do for us 
is understand and help you and I understand that, you know what, he is the point. He's not the means to the point. He's not a tool to get to the point. He is the point. His glory, his fame, his recognition is the point. Now, let me say something that is kind of obvious and kind of not obvious. Sometimes, when, especially if you're new to church, I mean, if it took me 15 years to even understand what the idea of God's glory is, then maybe you need to hear some verses as well. Because glory is kind of one of those words that preachers use that sometimes seems very impractical. What does that mean? So I'm going to read you some verses. But glory is a word that you see over and over and over and over again, more than you will, more than you will believe. One of the great Bible studies you could do is just take a concordance or just do a little Google search and just put glory and see how many times this comes up. But glory in the Old Testament was a Hebrew word named kabod, which means weight, weighty, significance. You and I, years ago, you might say, that person carries great weight with me. The New Testament word for the Old Testament idea of God's glory is the word doxa, which we get our word doxology from. It means all praise, all everything goes toward God, is from God, and it is for God. So as you look at this, let me give you a couple of uh, verses and a definition, because I know people are like, what is, what is God's glory? Let me give you, this is not exhaustive, but here's an idea. Some different, different commentaries, different theologians. Glory is the manifestation of God's reality. It is both simple and complex. God is invisible, so we don't see God but when we see something or someone that evidences the reality of God and God's existence, that is revealing the glory of God. So stay with me. You don't see, you don't see God. It's not like you like, I mean, God is spirit. You don't see God. What you do is you see evidence that God is at work. So that's why like Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the weight, the recognition of God. Psalm 19.1, Isaiah 43.7. Now, some of these are going to be jarring, so kind of just listen to the verses. This is not exhaustive. Isaiah 43.7, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. In other words, I remember hearing, I, I, heard, this, I heard this in seminary. God created you for fellowship. God created you for fellowship. And there's a part of that that's true, but the message that I at least took was that God was lonely and God needed some buddies and God needed some company. That is not true. God is completely self-sufficient. God has need of nothing at all. God was not up in heaven going, man, I'm lonely up here in heaven. Let me go ahead and make some glory stealers and I'll make them and they can sing to me on Sunday and then forget about me the rest of the week. That's what I'll do. He never does that. He makes us to be an HD television picture of God's glory by the way that we live, by the way that we love. That's what he made us for, for his glory. Israel, here's one that'll blow your mind. We just talk about the whole Old Testament, the way God used Israel, and there's a bunch of fuss about why did he do this. I would, here's some verses. I would say that he, he showed, revealed salvation to them, and he chose to use Israel because why? Because it brought him glory. Psalm 106, I saved them for the sake of my name, to make my power known. Isaiah 48, for my name's sake, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you. And if you study the Old Testament at all, you'll see Israel wasn't that awesome. You understand that? They were like the littlest, babiest, most fragile, most vulnerable little nation. 
And he didn't go, hey, man, you're a number one draft choice. Let me pick you and you can be my, you can, you can make me look good. I need you on my team. He did not. He picked the weakest one of the whole bunch and said, yep, I'll take you. Why? Because it shows his glory. They then leave him all the time. They forget about him all the time. And what does he do? Instead of annihilating them, instead of taking them off, 2 Samuel says, God gave Israel the promised land. Why? For the glory of his name. 1 Samuel says, I did not cast you away. Why? Because of the glory of my name. God saves Jerusalem from attack. Why? For the glory of his name. Jesus said this, or it says about Jesus in John chapter one. It says, the word became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the father. What did Jesus tell us? If you're his disciples, what did he tell you and I? Why do we do stuff? Matthew chapter five, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. So why do you do 828 Strong? Why do you rebuild houses? Why do you do child development centers over in Ecuador and Africa? Why do you sponsor kids? Why do we do that stuff? We do it not so people are like, man, they're good people. We do it so it's like, look at the God that they serve so that God's reputation would be expanded. John 14, why do you pray? It says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whether you ever notice this or not, Jesus is all about the glory of the Father. In John chapter 12, he's struggling with the cross. He understands the days are numbered when he is gonna go to the cross and die as a substitute, fulfilling all the Old Testament prophets. He's gonna die in your place. He's gonna die in my place, and he's struggling with that. So John chapter 12 says, now is my soul troubled, but what will I say? Father, save me from this hour? Listen to this, but for this purpose, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So the epistles then teach for you and I, whatever it is you do, 1 Corinthians says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all, do it all for the glory of God. So what does that mean? The most mundane things that you can do can be done for the glory of God. Normal stuff, eating a sandwich, drinking a cup of coffee, the way that you tip at a restaurant, the way you change a diaper at home, the way you work at vacation Bible school, all that normal stuff can be done for the glory of God. And so before you think, well, the preachers and the singers, they glorify God. Listen, you can too. You and I are called to, but it's a challenge. But the glory of God and making that your umbrella is like a ballast on a ship. I mean, you know what a, I mean, a ballast is that compartment down below the surface that they put there so that when the top starts to rock and roll and sway and get moved around, there is a balancing or a counterweight below that makes sure that the ship stays steady. That's the glory of God in our lives. Because the culture, again, the culture is going to say over and over and over again, it's going to scream at you, you are the point. You are the point. It is about you. You deserve this. Every marketing campaign, many churches, you are the point. Please hear me. This is such a good verse for us or such a good truth for us. You are not the point. You're not the point. I'm not the point. You're not the point. We love you. You're not the point. You're not the point. If you love church and God didn't love church, we have had a massive, massive failure. And so, um, a matter of fact, biblically, 
God is the point, and you're not even like a silver medalist. You understand? I mean, you're not even number two. You're like, well, okay, I'm second. No, no, you're not even second. You're not even, biblically, God is first, other people are second, and you and I are like third place. We're the bronze medal winners. At least biblically, that's the way it's supposed to be. And here's what I would say. Let me give you some practical stuff about God's glory and how it downloads into life. The more you think we are the point, the more enslaved you will be, the more you and I choose to make God the point, the freer you will be. So let me give you some examples. So if you make God the point, your marriage will actually get better. Because if you think you're the point, if you think you're the point in your marriage, then your spouse is simply a means to your happiness. If you are the point, then your spouse is simply a means. And then I'm not against happy. Happy is good. I mean, we all want happy, right? And when we wake up in the morning, you spin that big wheel. Come on, happy. We want happy. Happy is good. Happy is good. Happy is better than sad. But if you make your spouse the vehicle in which you are supposed to be happy, why? Because you are the point. Not only will that disappoint you that you are in effect, then you are now using your spouse. But that's why you make God the point. That's why you get through the tough stuff. That's why husbands, God can actually look at us and say, husbands, you love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, you're not gonna wanna do that unless you understand God's the point. Because if you're the point, that ain't fun at all. It's not fun. If there's a lot more woe than there is wow, guess what? Well, I'm just gonna throw in the towel and I'm gonna go find somebody else who will make me the point. So your marriage gets better. Matter of fact, the way you look at people in general, if you make God the point, it's gonna make you a lot happier. <laughs> this, is, uh, this, is, um, this is convicting, because when you're the point, when you're the point, you use other people. You use other people. And if you think you're the point, even something as simple as somebody cutting in front of you in traffic, if you're the point, you think they did that on purpose. If they cut in front of you, you think, man, that guy did that on purpose. That guy insulted me. I'm the point. How dare him jump in front of me? But if you understand you're not the point, that God's the point, then you can look at him as like, well, you know what? Maybe he's having a bad day, all right? Maybe he's from Florida. Maybe he's a cat lover. Whatever it is, you just understand. He just drives bad, but that's all right. God's the point. Glory to God. I love that person. Um, all right? If you're the point, as soon as you get that unexpected bonus, what do you think? They go, oh man, it's time to upgrade the deck out back. But if God's the point, you at least ask the question, is there something for the kingdom that I'm supposed to do with the unexpected bonus that I just got? If you're, if you're a business person, you know God's the point. You think things like this. Instead of just making a profit, which is great, I mean, great, make a profit. It's awesome. It helps a lot of people when you make a profit. But you also understand the back of your mind, you're not just there to make a profit, you're also there to make disciples. I'm also there for the kingdom. That I understand that maybe a couple hundred years from now, nobody ain't gonna know your stinking business. You understand that? Somebody will have sold your business three times over in a hundred years. What is gonna last is did you make disciples? That's what's gonna last. Did I actually glorify God? And I tell you what, don't think the church is immune to that. It's, it's, it's the church's pastors are not immune to this. I'm we're some of those insecure people out there. And so we get all fired up when we get on these lists and our church has been blessed in a lot of different ways and it kind of gives you that inside feeling when you get on this magazine list or this kind of list and you're like, hey, and if you're not careful, God's got to like smack you down like he did the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah, they didn't write this one, but the sons of Korah are the ones that took God's glory and then all of a sudden God says, all right, enough of you. And he judges them. And they apparently learn their lesson because they write one of the Psalms. It says, not to us, O God, not to us, but to your name be glory. 
I'll tell you what it also does. When you understand God's a point, it helps you forgive people that hurt you. Now, we've talked about this a bunch, and it's sometimes scary to even talk about forgiving people without being able to spend time on what forgiveness is not. It's not trusting. It's not you know, elimination of all barriers. It's not that stuff. But what forgiveness is, is you releasing them from a debt that they owe you because they offended you in some way. But when you know God's the point and God's glory is the point and you're not the point, all of a sudden, you know what? Would God be glorified? Would God be glorified in my life if I release them from the debt they owe me? So when you talk about your purpose in life, first one is I got to embrace the big picture. What's the big picture of God's, God's purpose? And then we get to enjoy living out our purpose. Now look at verse five and 11. He says it twice. Verse five and 11 he says, be exalted. This is a prayer. So he's taking his situation, in this case, pain. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And then he says, and he gives him a bunch of ways. Verse six, he starts talking about how God was going to rescue him. Verse seven, it's like, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. In other words, he's gaining courage. And then he starts to bust into worship and praise. And it's like, I will sing. I will make melody. But here's what you want to do. I'm going to give you two areas. Number one, how do you glorify God? Number one would be just your walk with the Lord. Your walk with the Lord. What does your walk with the Lord mean? If you look, if you look at David in the early part, he uses the word refuge over and over and over again. God, you are my refuge. You are my refuge. And a lot of it is what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, God, you know what? This cave is my refuge. He doesn't say my skill with a slingshot is my refuge. He doesn't say my 300 men that I got with me, they are my refuge. He's like, God, you are my refuge. What's he doing? He is saying, in the middle of my pain, in the middle of all this stuff that's going on, guess what? I'm going to trust you. I'm going to depend on you. And so what it is, is that is his walk with God. And then he starts to worship. Now, we've talked about this numerous times in the book of Psalms. But let me remind you, most of the reason for your worship is vertical. You need it, you need it, you need it. But to remind you from last week, there is a part of worship that is horizontal, the idea that you actually spur each other on as you worship and as you sing. And so it could be the fact that not only are you giving glory to God, but the person next to you is getting spurred on by the way that you worship. So you can't dictate if the person beside you believes actually all the stuff we're talking about. You can't make them believe that Jesus actually died for their sin and rose from the grave. You can't make them believe that God is good and faithful and loves them. You can't make them. That's God's job. But what you can do and what you can exhibit is whether or not they believe that you believe it. Do they believe based on those? We just did three songs today and they were pretty awesome. Those three songs in that 17 minutes, if somebody was sitting beside you, whether it be your little, your little, your little kid, whether it be your neighbor, whether it be a stranger, you don't even know. Would they believe that you believe what you were singing about? Would they believe that you were excited about that the son of suffering died on a cross for you? Would they believe that? Would they believe the fact that you are here because God is a good, good God? So the worship goes there, and here's the idea. The good times, you understand the glory of God is the point. That means when God blesses you, which is awesome, you just give praise to God. You show a watching world that just because God blesses somebody, they're not automatically going to have amnesia like God's people often have. Oftentimes, when we are going through hell, we reach out to God and glorify God. Some, but sometimes, when we go through the great times and the times of abundance, we forget God. But sometimes, when you do go through the difficult times, you also show a watching world 
that you know what? Even in the midst of the fact that your spouse walked out on you, man, I got I got a text this morning. I got a text this morning. I mean, literally like at 8:15, one of the church members used to sit right up here. Two weeks ago, his wife goes in. They go in for, she's fine. Wife goes in, they go in for a checkup. Two weeks ago, she passed away yesterday. I mean, boom, pancreatic. I mean, you get that call, that pancreatic cancer. Boom, all of a sudden you go from, hey, I'm great. You're on the front wheel worshiping God to how do we plan the services for my spouse who just died? Whether it be the good times or whether it be the very difficult times, the question is, what am I going to write on my life? I've told you this story about Bach, and I've, we looked up a picture for it. Johann Sebastian Bach, at the, at the bottom of all the stuff he did, all his compositions, all the stuff he would write, all the way that he would bless other people, what he would write at the bottom is SDG, which is Latin for sola de gloria, which means for the glory of God alone. For the glory of God alone. So he's got all this awesome stuff, all these accolades. We look back, and it's like, that guy is so famous. And he's blessed so many people, but what he understood at the bottom level is this is all for the glory of God. And what I'm trying to push on you is right at the bottom of your day, every single day, for the glory of God alone, my business, my business, my marriage, my kids, my house, my church, for the glory of God alone. And then um, I don't want you to miss this last one. And by the way, some of you are in that season of pain. Please do not underestimate the way that God uses your pain as a platform for the glory of God. And I don't have to look, and I don't have to look at texts that I got this morning. All I gotta do is look at my own life. I can't, I'm embarrassed to tell you how many times I was like, God, I wouldn't do it this way. This is not the way we're supposed to do it. And then even now, even now, I can look back and go, man, you had something so much bigger in mind. And if I can do that in my little finite mind and my little finite life, think how much bigger an omnipotent, omnipresent God can use even the stuff you can't figure out for the glory of God. So verse nine is the last thing I want you to notice. Verse nine says, he did all this and it says among the people and he did it among the nations. People make the Christian life real complicated. And at times, it's, it's not that life is not complicated. The Christian life is not super complicated. Christian life is, number one, believe on Jesus, surrender to the Lordship of Christ. That's like number one. If you hadn't done that, it's like you're not even, at, you're like at the starting point of God's purpose for your life. It's for you to turn from your sin and embrace Jesus by faith. It's like what you did on the cross, somehow, I don't understand it, somehow counted for me. When you said, Father, forgive them, that was me. You looked ahead. You knew that was me. That's the first purpose for God in your life, for you to repent and trust his son to save you. You can do that right now. You can do that online. God, I want to surrender to the lordship of Christ. God, I want to call out on your steadfast love and mercy. And that's purpose number one. Purpose number two is leverage whatever God gives you for the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom. That's it. That, well, what about that is honestly, that is it. The number one question, if you are a disciple of Jesus, is whose kingdom am I working on building? That's the number one question. And it's not just about preachers. Please hear this. It's not just about preachers. All we are, we're just, I'm, all I'm trying to do is spur you on. I'm kind of like the coach, like, come on, team. Come on, team. We can do this. I'm just kind of like calling the plays. I'm just reading the plays out. I'm just like the mailman. I'm just delivering the mail. But then you go out. It's like, I'm gonna live for the glory of God and the good of others and the advancement of the kingdom. That actually is the Christian life. And there's, 
There's people right around you every day. There's nobody in here that doesn't have people around them that don't know Christ. They don't have any understanding of what we're talking about today. And you can show it by the way you do your time, the way you pray for them, sharing your testimony, sharing a cup of coffee, sharing an invitation to church. We're going to see this in the fall series, but there's only, there's only two things that are going to last forever. You understand that? There's only two things that last forever. The souls of people and the word of God. Those two things last forever. Nothing else is going to last forever, okay? Your fame is not going to last forever. Your business is not going to last forever. This church ain't going to last forever. What is going to last forever are the souls of people and the word of God. And so what we want to do is like, in my little 75 years here, whatever it is you get, let me make much of God, his recognition, and his fame. And understand, it's bigger than you and I. Do you notice what he said? He said, I want to do it to the peoples, those are right around you. That's like Adventure Week. It's like those thousand plus kids are going to be in our church the next week or two. It's like the fact that 400 of you already said, I'll sign up and I'll devote myself to this next generation. Great job. But it's also, he says, to the nations, to the nations. Church, you know why we show some of these? I know some of y'all kind of tune it out. Some of y'all tune it out when somebody comes up here and does the generosity moment. We don't even take up an offering anymore, not a basket. So it's all dependent basically on, you know what, getting online or the black box back there or whatever. But you know why we connect the story to it is to help you understand. It's not just to pay the light bills. It's to actually go where people have not taken the gospel. Do you know there's 7,000 unreached people groups in the, in the world? When I say unreached people groups, I mean they've never even heard the gospel or they have very little access to the gospel. And so when we talk about, hey, we're doing some house churches over in the 1040 window, and you don't even know what 1040 window is, it's the most unchurched area in all of the world. There's places there that never, we got like nine Bibles, they got no Bibles, never heard the gospel. And so what you do matters, it matters, it matters. You know the fact that, I think it was 15,000 children die every day from a preventable disease. Preventable disease. Now, I know it's like, man, I don't want to hear that right at the end of the sermon right now. It's just overwhelming. I can't do anything. And we talk about just because you can't help everybody doesn't mean you can't help one or two or 10 or 4,000 or whatever it is. So what you got to ask is a lot of people, when they don't understand the glory of God, when they don't understand he's the point, they get all cocky and they ask questions like, I can't believe God would allow thousands of kids to starve every day. But when you understand the glory of God, you understand God could turn that question around in a heartbeat and ask us the same thing. With all the stuff I've given you, with all the resources I've given you, with all the monetary stuff I've given you, how can you allow thousands of kids to die every day with no food, no medicine? So the whole thing, it all comes back to the glory. That's the fundamental question. Whose glory am I gonna live for? Will I live for, will I live for my name, my reputation, my recognition, my 15 minutes of fame, because if you live for your 15 minutes of fame, that's all you're gonna get. You're gonna get 15 minutes of fame, which is so minuscule when it comes to eternities. So the song you sang earlier is called, um, is the, the refrain says, I will be his witnesses. I will be his witnesses. What it's saying is basically this little prayer. Here's a little prayer I wrote this morning. I wanted you to have something you could hold on to to say, and you don't need to write it down. You can just, it'll be on social, I'm sure, later. But when it says SDG, it just means solely to glory, what I said before. In other words, could you, this would be a great one to put on your mirror, put on your dashboard, put somewhere else. And here's what it basically says. It's like, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father. 
Like, how are we supposed to pray? You pray to your Father through the Son. That's what he teaches us to pray. Heavenly Father, I want to live today for the glory of God. You're like, I want to live my whole life. Great, good for you, good for you. Let's just take it one day at a time, all right? So if you would just say, today, today, I want to live for the glory of God. Today, I want to live for his recognition, his fame, whether I'm golfing, whether I'm working, whether I'm running, whether, whatever it is, I want to live today for the glory of God. I want to live, live, that's your business, that's your marriage. I want to live and love, which is the idea of people. I want to live and love for your name, your recognition, your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the way we're going to do it. We uh, respond we want to respond all the time. So first response will be this. If you want, go ahead and put that prayer back up there if you would, please. If you want that prayer, if you want that prayer to kind of, if you're like, I'm in on that. I don't know what it means. I don't even know what it entails. I'm just going to put my yes on the table to say, you know what? I might have a year left. I might have 50 years left, but I want to live for the glory of God. Wherever you are, Hendersonville, Brevard, Franklin, if you would just, and Arden, if you would just stand, if you're like, that's, that's what I want my life to be about. Now don't, I'm going to try, if you don't want to do that, nobody's going to give you a bunch of shame. Maybe a little bit. We might give you a little bit of shame. But just think about that. You're like, that's what I wanted to live for. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. When I say amen, we'll respond. We'll respond one of three ways. Number one, it's like a lot of times it's just about singing. It'll be a brief, like three minutes worth of singing. You know, I've witnessed this. I've witnessed your faithfulness. I've witnessed this. I want to tell the story. You got three minutes. Just give it your all. A lot of us have some things we want to give to God, just like David was doing. He's like, God, I want this pain to be used for the glory of God. You're in a painful season. What a great time to give that over to God. God, would you take this pain, take this difficulty, and make it a platform for the glory of God? Or I just don't understand it. Would you help me to walk faithfully while I go through this very difficult season? What a great, you don't think God would answer that prayer? 100% he would, 100% he would. And the others of us like, you know what? I need to be a generous person. I need to get my act together in that area. That's great as well. Father, we want to thank you so much for the faithfulness of God. We want to be good witnesses. We're bad witnesses a lot of times. We keep our mouth closed. We walk by people as if they don't even matter. Forgive us for that. Jar us. Wake us up from that. We got a limited amount of time, Father. You know it. You know the days. You know our days are numbered, and you're the only one that knows how many days we have. But God, as, as, as you are our witness, what we want this song, what we want this prayer to be about is saying we want to live for the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom. Help us to know our specific role and exactly how you want to fulfill your purposes with us. But for right now, we know that we need to sing, we need to bring, and we need to pray. And so Lord, we pray for this next couple of weeks with vacation Bible school and just tons of kids everywhere. God, help us to be about passing the gospel on to that next generation. We love you. Give the next few minutes to you. Help us be good prayers, just like David would. Help us be good worshipers, just like David was. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.